encouraged last night at the response of the truth of God. Many of you said to me, I enjoyed that message. And in the old days, I would have taken that uh, as a derogatory comment. I would want you to be uh, having consciences pricked and uh, convicted, uh, but it's good to be encouraged by the Word of God, isn't it? If you missed last night, it was basically summarized by Martin Luther's statement in terms of assurity of salvation and assurance. When I look to myself, I don't know how I could possibly be saved. But when I look to the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know how I could possibly be lost. What a great truth, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have about, I think, 60 minutes or so. I want you to know the longest sermon I've ever preached in public is 92 minutes. So I'm going to do a little shorter than that this time. You might ask, why 92 minutes? Well, I always ask the pastor, how long do you preach? And I try to preach as long as he does. And the pastor said to me, I preach 92 minutes. I thought, why 92 minutes? He said, well, uh, we have a 90-minute cassette tape, and those are technically 46 minutes on each side. They're really a 92-minute cassette, so preach for 46 minutes, stop, let the person in the back take out the tape, flip it around, put it back, and you go again. I said, 10-4, Roger. <laughs> Thanks for all your hospitality, by the way. Uh, I'm staying with Herman and Judith. They are very kind and they represent the church well here for generosity, hospitality, espresso, bicycles, and more. So I really appreciate your hospitality, Riverbend, and Impact. What blows your mind? What do you think is awesome? I think we throw that word around regularly and probably inappropriately at times. Awesome. Where you just kind of think, think to yourself, my, my mouth wants to drop open and just kind of be in wonder and in awe. That is an amazing thing. You probably have your own list. Included on, my, included on my awesome list is when my wife said yes to me uh, almost 30 years ago. Uh, we were, uh, I, I asked her on May 6th to marry me, and on June 6th, we got married because I didn't want her to find out about the real me, so we just rushed it along. <laughs> That's true, actually. In some regards, uh, my mouth pretty much dropped each and every time one of my four children were born. To stand there uh, in the hospital and watch those babies be born, uh, I usually said loud enough for the nurses to hear me, and the babies would come out and I would say, ain't evolution grand? <laughs> they looked at me uh, with a perplexed look. I've done crazy things like swim from Alcatraz or skydive or things like that. That was just kind of like in awe. Uh, I've stood by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus stood. I was in awe. Uh, I was in awe to be able to be a pastor and preach the truth to people, even though I knew I was still sinful. And probably at the top of everyone's list without question is that God would save us, that he would redeem us, that he would give his son on our behalf because he loved us with an everlasting love. Probably some of those are familiar to you. But maybe there's something more mind-blowing than all of those. Without hyperbole, without exaggeration, there I think is something more mind-blowing, and that is the triune pact of God to save sinners in eternity past. Before Genesis 1, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit made a promise, an agreement to save sinners. And that's what we're going to look at today. And I think you'll respond with, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His 
ways. Today will be a study of the triune God. I commend you, by the way. Uh, typically, you can't fill conferences with a study on the triune God. You need something like prophecy or you need something like marriage. But to study the triune God usually doesn't fill conferences. Today, we're going to look at the eternal decree of the triune God. And I think it'll be helpful to you to understand Him better, to praise Him more, to be more in awe of Him. Spurgeon said, the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of the child of God. And the great part about this message, even if I fail rhetorically, the weight of the truth will blow you away because of the eternal nature of our God and how He decided to save sinners. Many people say, uh, well, let's go through the plan of salvation. Today we're going to answer the question, when was that plan? Who made the plan? How far back was that plan? And was that plan contingent on what you might do? On what you might believe? Was it contingent on your faith, allowing God to do something? Or in eternity past, God decided to save sinners and rescue them. It is a mind-blowing truth. Let me give you some reinforcement steel undergirding before we start this and go to the Bible. Number one, the triune God is a decreeing God. He decrees. The Father decrees, the Son decrees, and the Spirit decrees. And if you want to know a, a simple synonym for decree, that is purpose. He has a purpose. He has a determination. And those determinations are like Him, eternal. Shorter Catechism says, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His glory He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And maybe the most incredible thing about this decreeing God is the decree is singular in essence. The Bible declaims, proclaims that God has one decree. Can you imagine in God's supreme mind, no plan B's, no if-thens, no flow chart, no decision-making process like we have. He doesn't need an eraser. He doesn't need whiteout. God's plan cannot get better because it's already the wisest and it stems from His perfect mind. Ephesians 1.11, and also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. There's another strand of rebar before we get to Titus chapter 1, and that is God is free to decree or to refrain from decreeing. In other words, if he wants to decree creation, he can, but he's not obligated to. If he wants to decree salvation, he can, but he is not obligated to. God has no pressure from the outside. He is not bound by anyone's will, not the angel's will, not by our will, but of his own free will, he decrees. No external cause. He has full and sovereign and independent and supreme will and liberty. I ask with Isaiah, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Isaiah chapter 40. The final undergirding is not just that God decrees and not just that he decrees freely, but also he decrees from divine love, eternal love. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit love one another. They've always loved one another, and they have decided in their decreeing love to love other people. God decrees, God decrees freely, and He decrees from His holy, eternal love. So if you'd like an outline this afternoon, I almost said this morning, I think it is maybe in Boston, really, is it? Maybe. I'm going to just give you three mind-blowing truths that will help you understand the eternal decree so that you might be in awe of God and realize that God is greater than you can imagine. In other words, when you think about God, whatever you think about God, that's not really God because He's that much greater than we are. We tend to think of God as, as maybe just degrees better. You know, we're powerful, He's a little bit powerful. But we're not talking about degrees of, degrees of God. We're talking about He's different in essence. And I think these will help you be in awe of God and praise God from whom all blessings flow. Mind-blowing truth number one. The when of the eternal decree. When did God decree things? When was the plan of salvation? If you'll take your Bible and turn to Titus chapter 1, let's answer that question. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but there is a tradition uh, about a, a skeptic that was mocking God about the doctrine of creation, and Augustine uh, was fairly cynical in his response. When people say, what was God doing before he created the world? Augustine's alleged reply, creating hell for curious souls. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think we can go back in eternity past and see from Scripture. I mean, how else could we find out what God was doing? It must be from revealed revelation. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes to Titus on an island called Crete. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, pay attention please, promised before the ages began. Promise before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God. It's interesting, people on Crete lied a lot. Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. True? This testimony is true. And he's, he's playing on the term of this lying island. I think you've probably heard of you know, some kind of uh, survivor island. This is lying island where everybody lies, and he, and he plays off of that. There's all these liars on this island, but there's a God who never lies. The, the, the Crete people, the Cretans, they loved a man named Zeus, and he had to lie to get the, the, his, his, his kind of this woman to sleep with him, and just the sordid stories. Supposedly Zeus was entombed there on Crete. But I want you to look especially, promise before the ages began. That's fascinating to me. The text does not say, no matter what translation you have, God promised to them. God promised to Paul. God promised to Titus. God promised to believers. God promised to saints. It simply says, and only says, God promised. Now I have a question. In eternity past, did God promise to the angels? There's no angel, there were no angels there. Were you in eternity past? 
No, there's no one there in eternity past. To whom did God make the promise? And the answer is, within the Trinity, there was a promise before Genesis 1. That's the point of this. Before time began, before anything was created, God determined with a great plan to go rescue sinners. And He didn't have to do it, but He planned that. That is amazing to me. It should be amazing to you. To whom did God make the promise? Before time, there was no one. There were not any angels. And we see this Trinitarian love, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreeing to go rescue sinners. This is pretty fascinating. Sometimes I I talk to my friends and I'll say, well, when did you get saved? And they'll say, well, I got saved. I was really convicted by my sins and And I know what they're meaning, but I'm trying to expand it a little bit instead of just thinking about in time. Well, when did you get saved? I got saved in eternity past in the triune council of God. I got saved when Jesus died on the cross. I got saved when I repented and believed in 1989. I am being saved now progressively in sanctification, and ultimately I'll be saved in glory. Which salvation are you talking about? Are they keeping up with me? Okay, go. We have to make them work. You're saved by grace, but you're, you're, you do video by works. That's certainly true. Now, one of the great things about this, I know it takes effort, especially in the afternoon, to listen. When you begin to think about God and contemplate about the work of God, you know what happens to me? I forget about my back that hurts. I forget about the 12 biopsies I have to have this fall. I forget about all the issues that go on, and you begin to think about who God is. We are to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's, there's something to be said for the contemplation of God, especially in evangelicalism where everything is just give me the list of five things to do, four things to avoid, three things to remember, two things to never forget, and I can't remember what the other one is, but it does something for you to do. I, it's, this is behold your God in eternity past. And you should start thinking right now, if God is determined to save somebody in eternity past, I think that's going to guarantee that I'm saved. This is not a God who's saying, I'm going to look down the corridors of time, and Mike will do this, or Mike will do that. Nobody has been created yet. There are no corridors of time. That's, it's a made-up thing. Christian, before time began, you've been chosen. It's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose, our decree, and grace which was given to us in Christ before time began. And this is called the decree of God. It's called, I'll let John MacArthur define it. And here the apostle says God's eternal purpose, the same promise that was made before the beginning of time, was given to us in Christ Jesus. The eternal pledge of our salvation, the divine covenant of redemption, involved a promise made by the Father to the Son before time began. This council of peace, this this triune agreement to go rescue sinners. Pretemporal agreement. And if this agreement had not been made, there would be no incarnation, there would be no redemption, there would be no resurrection, there would be no salvation for any of us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, God's great plan is suggested in this verse. There was a great council held between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit 
Do we realize that our salvation was planned before the world was created? It is the realization of this fact that makes a man stand up on tiptoe and shout praise to God, chosen before the foundation of the world. I know some people want to have second blessings and, and maybe something happens to them. Friend, this is my second blessing right here. The first one was I realized I was saved. The second one, I realized when God chose me to be saved. It's amazing to think about God in eternity past chose you. I mean, I got married to Kim within 30 days because I did not want her to find out what I was like. And God knew everything about you before he made you. Every little sin, and he chose you anyway. And when did he do the choosing? When you believed? Absolutely not. In eternity past. Planned and created by God. Remember Paul, when, when he thought about this 25 years later after the Damascus Road experience? 25 years later. Now, if you've been saved for 25 years or more, maybe you're like me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's like, you know, you know, just saved. That was not Paul. It was fireworks for Paul. And what caused the fireworks? Listen as I say these words that you're familiar with. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in him before the what? Foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, singular now, according to the purpose of his will. I mean, you can't get over it. I know that there are some thinking, well, I'm not a robot and God's not going to make me do this. And I, I get that. But I think deep down it's a rejection of Scripture and it's simply pride because this is the most pride-crushing doctrine at all. He didn't choose you because you were lovely. He chose you because He decided to. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 7. Why was Israel chosen? They were great. They were mighty. They were force of, of, of nature. No. God just wanted to love them. An old woman said to John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, she was sure God chose her before she was born because he never would have chosen her afterward. I mean, can you imagine the love of God? Uh, I do premarital counseling and I often have a scenario where I have the groom-to-be and the bride-to-be in my office and I love to do this and I say, to the, to the young man or an older man too, I say, could you give me four reasons why you're picking her to marry her. And he's like, really? Right now in front of her? And she's like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> and they have no idea what to do. They don't know if I want like real answers or theological answers. They don't know whether they can start off with she's pretty, you know. Uh, one guy said to me, it's true. He goes, because he's like, you know, this really this theologian. He goes, well, the first reason I picked her is she's a five-point Calvinist. I just thought, oh, it's so romantic. <laughs> and they give me the list, and, you know, they, she loves children, she loves the Lord, she loves to serve others, and they're a wonderful list. And then I say, by the way, could I share that at the wedding? Oh, that'd be sweet. And then I say at the wedding, by the way, it's right for this young man to pick this young lady for these four reasons. We pick because of. We find things attractive in people and we pick because of. But if I can remind you of four things that we were that God 
knew about and still loved us and picked us anyway, it magnifies divine love because God doesn't pick because of, he picks in spite of. And Romans chapter 5 says, here's our four things, helpless, ungodly, enemies, and sinners. Who loves like that? But right now the question is not who loves like that, when did he love? And the issue is, in eternity past, when he made this pact, when did God choose? Before the foundation of the world, totally independent of human influence. Revelation 13, names not written from the foundation of the world. Second Thessalonians 2, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and of faith. The language could not be more explicit. Now, most of the theologians will say, in this eternal council, you typically hear the Son and the Father talking more than the Spirit. So there'll be a lot of focus on the Father and the Son talking. For instance, Psalm 2, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thy inheritance. Psalm 89, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. They'll talk about how the Father covenanted with the Son or agreed with the Son that the Son would go obey the law and then redeem lawbreakers and be raised from the dead. They talk about how the Father gave the Son a work to do. Remember Jesus says, it's my, it's my will, it's my food to do the Father's will. But I want you to remember on this conference on the Holy Spirit, while the data is focused primarily on the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, he's a member of the eternal triune God, right? He, he was there. He plays a crucial role in this decree. And at minimum, you have to say he was a witness to this great promise. Thomas Brooks the Puritan said, the whole compact and agreement between God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ about the redemption of poor sinners' souls was really a solemnly transacted open court promise. Or as I may say, in the presence of the great public notary of heaven, the Holy Ghost, who being a third person of the glorious Trinity, of the same divine essence and of equal power and glory, makes up the third legal witness with the Father and the Son. The when of salvation and eternal decree is eternity past. But that's not all. Mind-blowing truth number two. The how, the when eternity passed, the how, or the application of the eternal decree in time. And we'll see the Holy Spirit really involved here. If I could give you the summary, it would simply be the Holy Spirit in actual time, in actual time reality, gave Jesus, equipped Jesus, furnished Jesus with everything He would need to accomplish redemption. And in time, then the Holy Spirit would apply the life and death of Christ to individual sinners and make them alive. And while we don't hear much of what the Spirit does in eternity past, we see that in time, in fact, when Jesus was on earth, Jesus was equipped by the Spirit, and the Spirit's work applies Christ's life and substitutionary death. I think it is fair to say as Sinclair Ferguson says, I think we're going to recommend that book sometime. Have we recommended it yet? The Holy Spirit book. If there's one book that you want to get on the Holy Spirit to help you see the, the panoply of the Spirit of God's work, 
Sinclair Ferguson, the Holy Spirit, and he said that the Holy Spirit was involved with Christ from womb to tomb to throne. A constant companion of the Lord Jesus was, in fact, the Holy Spirit. Abraham Kuyper said the church has never sufficiently confessed the influence of the Holy Spirit exerted upon the work of Christ. What the Spirit of God promised in eternity past, He actually does in time in the person of work, at work of Christ and in our lives. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 4, and let's just look at one particular case. We could look at how the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary so that that offspring Jesus would be holy the Holy Spirit hovers over Mary, the power of the Most High. We could look at the baptism of Jesus where the Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove, like a dove, and, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm what? Well pleased. But let's just take for a moment looking at Luke chapter 4 to see the, the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. Remember, although He's eternally divine, He's also human. And by the way, why does Jesus have to be divine and human? Answer is, because if God is thrice holy, which He is, and man is sinful, how can we have a mediator that Job 9 says will put His hand on God, as it were, and put His hand on us and be the arbiter and the mediator? Well, if He's not human, He can't represent us. And if He's not God and perfect, He will then need a mediator. And so you need the God-man, not just fully God, because that's kind of a, a quantity kind of thing, but qualitatively, fully God. He can put His hand on the Father, as it were, and His hand on us as a perfectly human, perfectly God to be our mediator. And He's going to need the Spirit of the Lord's help. After all, we need His help, and Jesus is perfectly man. He needs the Spirit's help. Verse 18, Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You can kind of think about how the Spirit empowers all these Old Testament people, and now to the greatest degree, we see the anointing of the Messiah. The Spirit of God is involved everywhere. It would be a great study for you when you have more time. How He was there at conception. How He was there at birth of Jesus. How He was there when Jesus was growing. How Jesus needed Him at His baptism. Jesus needed the Spirit of God, true or false, when He was tempted in the wilderness. The answer is true. Flesh is frail. It needs the work of the Spirit. When I think about the eternal decree, just to stop for a second, because this is like, you know, you kind of just, you almost get a headache in the middle of it all. Which, by the way, I don't even mind. To think about the Lord Jesus and, and the triune God and kind of get a headache, we probably should get headaches more often. First of all, I'm finite, He's infinite. And I'm fallen. How can I wrap my arms around here? All I can do is say, whatever God has revealed, I will accept. And by the way, 
one of the things you can do that will show that you're maturing in Christ is you don't have to make mental closure and get your arms all the way around this and figure everything out and have every answer to everything because you know what? God is infinite and holy and we're finite and sinful and sometimes I just have to let it be. The text says he's perfectly human and perfectly divine and I have to go, well, how do you figure that out? I don't do that. I go, I accept revelation and I accept that God knows much more than I do. I think it was Calvin who said, God talks to us in baby talk. You ever have a little boy or a little girl and how do you talk to them? Probably with monosyllabic words is my guess. That wasn't in my notes, by the way. I just wanted to say monosyllabic. Why is monosyllabic not a monosyllabic word? But that's another point. I just did these things because I'm just trying to give you a breath for a second because this is heady stuff. In eternity past, there's a council, and now in time, that spirit who was at the council equips Jesus and then applies Jesus' life and death to us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. There is hardly anything in the epistles about the Spirit of God's assistance of the Lord Jesus Christ in His life and death. But this verse is crystal clear. I've just been preaching through Hebrews and just preach this passage. From conception to birth to temptations to inauguration in public ministry to the miracles to and up to and including death of the Spirit of God was helping the Lord Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. How much more, Hebrews 9.14, will the blood of Christ, we're talking about a vicious death sacrifice, we're not talking about strangulation, but substitutionary death, who through the eternal, and your Bible should have a capital S there, Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Spirit of God is powerfully working in the life of Jesus, the God-man, up to and including offering Himself to death. All of His ministry has re reference with the Holy Spirit. I could say it this way. Jesus' Son does not carry out His mission that was agreed in eternity past without the Holy Spirit. One confession says the Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, which He, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of His Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those that the Father has given Him. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is, in a sense, bathing Jesus with that power from on high that was eternally decreed. From anointing, to drawing the elect to Himself, to regenerating people, He, the Spirit of God, was working. Turn to John chapter 3, please. Typically on a Sunday, I'll just go to one passage and work our way through, but we're looking at a few different passages now. John chapter 3. Uh, before Genesis 1, there's the eternal decree, and the Father is going to send the Son for ministry, powered by the Holy Spirit. And I just want you to see in the Gospel of John, this sending. And it will help you realize that the Father and the Son agreed with the Spirit's witness to send the Son. We're just going to do a cursory view, 
Not every verse, but just I want you to see the recurrent theme in John's gospel. John 3, 17, let's start there. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 34 of John 3. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now stop just for a second. Uh, do we talk that way about anybody else's life except Jesus? What do you mean? Uh, how about I just do it for myself? On May 12th, 1960, I was sent into this world. Do we talk that way? Egomaniacs do. You're thinking maybe Americans do. We say, I was born. And you know, Jesus, only one time with Pilate, said he was born. The other language is all, I was sent. I existed in eternity past, and the Father sent me. Doesn't that blow your mind? It blows mind. Nobody talks like this. Let's look at a few other verses, John 6, 29. Jesus answered them, John 6, 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Verse 38 of the same chapter, chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on that last day. So there's the plan, the origination of the plan, and then there's the execution of the plan as the Spirit of God comes alongside of the Lord Jesus to make that happen. John chapter 17, please, just in one, there are other ones we could look at, but this is the chapter that has the most of these, sending the Son on a specific mission, decided in eternity past, and sent into the world. He had to be born to do this very thing. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Dear friends, if you disagree with me, I want you to ask this question. When was it determined to send? After he was born? See, you can't do that. You're going to just have to theologically say uncle. You're going to just have to tap out and go, the father and the son decided to send the son with the spirit's agreement and power in eternity past. I have no other options. Verse 8 of John 17, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 18, And you sent me into the world. Verse 21, Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And there's the same language in verse 23 and 25 and more. How did the Lord Jesus obey on earth? When he says in 17.4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The only way he could do it is with the help of the Holy Spirit. After all, he was man. Everything that Jesus needed to accomplish his saving work was given to him by the Holy Spirit's enablement. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And again, I, I try not to jump around too much but it's needed today. Here's one of those passages that you just go, wow, this is amazing. I'm always amazed when people tell me that the Bible's boring. I don't think they're reading the same Bible. 
think I told the, the Hamilton School uh, the other day that uh, I, I went up to York Beach and we, we go up there in Maine to do some surfing and, and uh, my family surfs more than I do, but I just kind of go because it's a family thing. And I got in a hot tub and um, there was like a 15-year-old boy in there and he didn't like it that I was getting into the hot tub at the hotel. I mean, I just didn't walk into somebody's residence. And he gives me that look. You know, I know that look because I'm a master of that look, but I know that look. And he goes, my dad's a police officer in town. I said, what town? York? Really, he is. That is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm the mayor of York. He goes, oh. I said, no, I'm really a Bible teacher. He goes, the Bible's boring. I go, I know. That time where that general goes running into the tent and the lady says, oh, come in here, lay down, here's some milk, here's a special thing to lay down your pillow. But he was really an enemy and he falls asleep and she picks up the hammer and gets the spike and puts it on the temple of the man and drives it through the man. I know what you're talking about. It's kind of boring. You know, all that stuff about they're rebelling against God. And the earth opens up and swallows Korah and his children. Yeah, I know. And I'm telling you why I just did those stories because I'm trying to get you to just go, okay, now here we go again. Dive back down. It's better than me telling jokes, isn't it? I mean, I could get up here and say, you know, what's the difference between Benny Hinn and a dog? I mean, a dog can heal. I mean, what are we going to do? Okay, okay. I would never do that at a conference. Because I'd probably never be asked back. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10. You can tell why I like radio. All right. Hebrews 10.1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You all know the Old Testament sacrifices were deficient because you had to regularly do them over and over and over. Otherwise, verse 2, they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, and don't you forget it. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I mean, God never had that in mind. It was all the point to the Lord Jesus Christ. A shadow, a substance was going to come later. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So how could sins be taken away? And now right from Psalm 40, consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, by the way, did you catch that? Sometimes we read the Bible too fast. When Christ came into the world, that's like the language of He sent. Not born, but He came into the world. He said, by the way, what did you say when you came into the world? Uh-huh. That sounded like some kind of dead magpie over there. I was warned by Herman that there's magpies in the spring that dive bomb him like 21 helmet strikes he has on his head. It's crazy. On his helmet, rather. Not his head, sorry. What did Jesus say? Well, he existed eternally. There was the eternal decree of God. The Father agreed with the Son, with the Spirit to send him. What did he say when he came into the world? This is Semitic language for 
the eternal decree. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. You sent me to do your will. I've come into the world to do your will. That was established in eternity past, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The willing obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father appoints the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, He goes and He dies. When Christ came into the world, when He was born, He knew what He was going to do. You need to obey perfectly the law, and Adam didn't, and Jesus has to obey perfectly with a body. He can't do it as a spirit. He needs a body to do I have come to do your will. When was that will determined? In eternity past. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and light, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11. More messianic passages showing that the Spirit of God had to be in the life and the work of the Lord Jesus. Mind-blowing truth number three. We looked at the when in eternity past. We looked at the how. How the Spirit of God equips the Lord Jesus. And now we're going to look at the application in time for believers. The when, the how, and this is for the human side, the how or the application of the decree. When does the Holy Spirit apply the benefits of Christ to those whom the Father gives to the Son? And He does it in time. Okay, I want to be careful when I say this because it could be jarring. God's eternal purpose technically doesn't save anyone because it still must be put into effect. Redemption must be accomplished in time by the power of the Holy Spirit. John Owen writes, when God designed the glorious work of recovering fallen man, he appointed two great means thereof. The first one was the giving of His Son for them, and the other was the giving of His Spirit to them. So in eternity past, the Father and the Son, with the Spirit, choose the bride, choose the elect. The Son goes and follows the direction of the Father, and He dies for those same people. And now in time, the Spirit of God applies the work of the Son to those exact same people. Did you get that? There are all kinds of implications here, but it should be very clear to you that God didn't pick everybody, Jesus didn't die for everybody, and the Holy Spirit didn't apply it to everybody. It should also be very clear to you that the Holy Spirit, the Father could have picked nobody, the Son dies for nobody, and the application of the Spirit is to no one. It also should make you think that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, one essence, Three persons, they have to decide the same thing. And if the father decides to say, son, go rescue the bride, he doesn't go rescue the sheep and the goats. Because the Holy Spirit will not apply the work of the son to both the sheep and the goats and therefore defy the father. See how many cascades of things there are in this? If you buy into the eternal decree, ideas have consequences. 
I could put it this way. Do you mean to tell me that someone that the Father chose in eternity past and that the Son died for will not get to heaven by the work of the Spirit of God? It can't be. One God, three persons. And therefore, you have to be very, very careful to not think, you know, what the Father gave everyone, including Judas, to the Son to go die for, and then the Spirit of God doesn't apply the death of Christ to Judas, and we know He did not. Ideas have consequences. And one thing is for sure. The Father is going to be pleased by the Son's obedience because they are, He is assured success by the Spirit of God. One of the ways you can probably think about this is the Father is the originator, the Son is the executive, and the Spirit is the applier. That's a good way to think about it. And this doesn't hurt our view of God because we know they have different roles in redemption, do we not? The Father didn't die on the cross. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. The originator, the executive, and the applier. In time, dear Christian, the Spirit of God convicted you of sin. And you thought, you know what? Remember that time when you thought, I really am a sinner? And if the Bible says what's true, I'm going to go straight to hell when I die because I've transgressed God. How many times does it take for you to spit in the, in the face of a king before he damns you? That conviction was not based on society and you thought you had an illness or you thought you had a disease or a dysfunction. You realize, I've sinned against a thrice holy God. And remember when Isaiah saw God holy and lifted up and he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What did he say after that? Woe is what? Me. Curse me. Damn me. And he thought he was going to get what he just asked for when the death angel comes to slay him, except he didn't get slain. Because of the love of God, he had redemption. When you feel conviction of sin, it's the Spirit. When we look in the next couple days on the regeneration of the Spirit, it's Jesus' death applied to the person by regeneration, making them alive. The Father chooses, the Son dies for, and the Spirit applies. When I was a kid, I had to memorize the Nicene Creed, and it was pretty dry to me. And now I read this section, and I realize how wonderful this is. Who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. That's about the Holy Spirit applying and executing the work of the Father, applying the work of the Son. Question, does any of this matter? The first reason I think this doctrine is important for you is because it should make you praise the Lord. Can you lose in time what was secured in eternity? People talk about it all the time. Can you lose your salvation? 
If you earned your salvation, you could lose it. But if it was guaranteed in eternity past, Jesus died for your sins in time, and the Spirit of God applies that, you can't lose what you didn't gain. It's amazing to me, God is eternal. What about informing us on the love of God? Why is this practical? It teaches us about the love of God and provides us with comfort and assurance. We don't have to speculate. Oh, there's things we don't know, but we can, we can understand that God was eternally moved to love sinful people. God the Father loving the Son, Son loving the Spirit, Spirit loving the Father. This great love of God, and He wants to share it with others. If you're a Christian, it's not because you're wiser, smarter. The answer is not found in you. I have a friend, his name's Scott and me. Why? We grew up together. Our parents were best friends. They call Scott the anvil. He's got this big beard that comes down here. I think a ZZ top every time I, I see him. If I told you everything about Scott, you'd think that was a, a wicked man. Why am I here preaching today and Scott's the wicked man? Is the answer found in Scott? Is the answer found in me? The answer is found in the eternal decree of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's why if you've got loved ones and they're not saved, no matter what kind of rationalistic, evidentialistic, begging you do to them, for them, you can't save anybody. But no matter how much they deny and push and resist and stiff arm the thrice holy God, He will save those He's the chosen. It's amazing to me. This makes me trust Him. This makes me think that's exactly right, that God, you've determined this in eternity past by your will, not mine, for your glory, not mine, accomplished by the Son, not me. The eternal decree of God. So here's what we've learned so far. In eternity past, something was going on with the triune God. We would have no idea unless we had some information from Scripture. They decided to, to rescue the bride. Jesus is born by the power of the Spirit. He's overcoming temptation by the power of the Spirit. He does miracles by the power of the Spirit. He dies by the power of the Spirit. True or false, He's raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. He ascended by the power of the Spirit. And now that Spirit applies salvation to all those that the Father has chosen. And the response is belief. And Spurgeon puts it this way. And he said, if I could talk this way without saying anything untoward about God, I'd like to. And he talks about the Father and the Spirit and the Son. The Father says this. We're just, we're just guessing what happened in eternity past. I, the Most High, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall be by Him washed from sin, by Him preserved and kept and led, and by Him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant by oath and swear by myself, because I can swear no greater, that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merits of His blood. To these will I give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. 
That's what the father said in Spurgeon's eyes as he was just anticipating what it was exactly. The Holy Spirit responds, I, the Holy Spirit, covenant that all whom the Father gives to the Son, I will in due time quicken. I will show them of their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hope and destroy their refuge of lies. I will bring them to the blood of the sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them, and they shall be presented at last spotless and blameless. And then the sun says through Spurgeon's eyes, and it is magnificent. My father, I covenant on my part that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world and for my people will I keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time I will bear the sins of my people. Thou shalt exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even death on the cross. I will magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all that they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of the law, and all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spit upon my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend into heaven and I will intercede for them at thy right hand. And I will make myself responsible for every one of them. That not one of those thou hast given me shall ever be lost. That I shall bring all my sheep of whom by thy blood has constituted me the shepherd. I will bring everyone safe to thee at last. If your response is not... That's an awesome God. I don't know if I could help you. But if your response is, that's your God. That's your God. No wonder the Bible says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. No wonder the Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because it all started in eternity past. And guess what? God keeps His promises. No wonder we can say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for our time in the Word. Very, very heady information. But true, you promised with your Son and the Spirit to rescue sinners. And in fact, you did. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. There's nothing in us, yet you loved us anyway. Thank you for making this so conspicuous by demonstrating this at Calvary. I pray for everyone here, Father, that you would give them a sense of joy, that the eternal God would love them. How often do we hear people say, I love you, and it's not real, and it falters? And it flickers. But as much as you love the Son, you love us because we're in the Son. You could not love us more. You could not love us less. Thank you. Let us live in light of this truth as joyful people, as people quick to forgive others, and as people who are thankful even when circumstances are difficult. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Mike, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm not sure if I know of a, a more important message needed for our hour. Um, that's a very, very important message. The doctrine of the eternal decree may, I'm not sure, it may be new to you, but this is, this is the old paths. The mid to late 1600s, you can read the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and they all talk about the eternal decree. And so what we've heard is, is historic, faithful truth anchored in the Word of God. And so there's a lot there. Study further. But Mike, thank you so much. That is so, so important. You made mention of a book by Sinclair Ferguson. I want to make mention of another book by J.V. Fesco. It's called The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. It's over at the bookstore there. You can certainly um, go and uh, make yourself um, known in the bookstore and find this copy. It's on sale over there at the bookstore for you. Um, the Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. Um, we're just so blessed. I was so blessed by that. Um, thank you, brother. Thank you. Well, we have dinner coming up tonight. If you're booked in for dinner, there's a high number of people booked in for dinner tonight. And we're just asking that you'd head directly over to the marquee because we have a lot of people to feed. And so um, we look forward to that. And we also look forward to continuing on Impact 2019 with um, another session tonight by Pastor Scott Ardavanis. And so enjoy some fellowship and we'll see you soon. Thank you.